How can we make the world better? By making ourselves better. The Dr. Joe Show explores how you can make positive personal change by using his groundbreaking and highly effective I Am approach to understand who we are and why we do what we do. Your small changes can have big effects. Join us now for the Dr. Joe Show with Mark Stiles of Stiles Law, Thomas McCoy, and your host, Dr. Joe Schrand. Oh, welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. Congress applause. Congress applause. Thank you, Mark. That was a real nice one. Real good one. Especially, I mean, are you not winded? I mean, you're you're practicing for 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 Pam Mass. I mean Uh practicing. Yes, I'm constantly practicing. I'm I'm working uh working towards the goal of not being tired out there yeah so we went out there in a little heat heat wave today to see how we're doing on our hydration skills today crazy when is the uh, the actual race uh two weeks well it's not a race and that's not a race let's be careful with our words right it's very a ride, very right? important uh technically it starts uh two weeks from saturday but as i've mentioned here before we are doing what's called day zero yeah. The day before Pan Mass, we're going to go out to uh, the border of New York and and ride into the beginning for the day before. And how can people donate to this cause? Uh, PMC.org. Um, and then you can search for your favorite rider. One named Mark Stiles would be honored to uh, to to uh, accept your donations. But yep. uh, yeah, PMC.org. Very, very, very great organization. Uh, one weekend. Uh, a year raises more money than any other event in the nation. One event. What are you writing for, Mark? We are writing for Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. So we're writing to eliminate cancer from, uh, from the planet. And uh, they raise around $60 million last year. So I think their goal is, is uh, uh, north of that and, we're really excited. So I've got a $20,000 goal this year. I'm scratching the surface right now, but we've got a big push. So we've been uh, doing some social media campaigns and doing some fun things. We're doing an event uh, next week and um, we're going, I mean, the goal is, is to eliminate cancer from, from the vocabulary. Well, get, get your riding gear on. Cause I used to do it and I did it extensively. I uh, raised hundreds of thousands for leukemia and lymphoma society. And I was a a trainer and trained people. And I did 18 events. Wow. At a hundred mile rides. So, but you know how many miles you ride before you actually ride. So the reality is 26 weeks to training to get tuned up. You got lots of road time. Oh yeah. Yeah. My eldest son uh, has chronic myelogenous leukemia. So I know I know what it's like to do that. So congratulations to you. Good luck with your ride. Stay cool and don't overheat. Yeah, we're doing our best. We're doing our best. So IWATD listeners may not recognize that voice. Uh-huh. So let me pitch it over to you. And could you introduce our guest? Oh, that wasn't Larry? No, that <laughs> wasn't Larry. <laughs> oh, never mind, Dr. Joe. I got the little memo here. <laughs> Our guest tonight, Dr. Joe, is the creator and host of Inside Personal Growth. He is an author, creative consultant, and thought leader in the human potential movement. Inside Personal Growth was born out of his passion for personal growth and mastery. 
He continually strives to improve his own life spiritually, emotionally, and physically as he learns from the hundreds of authors interviewed on his website. Welcome to the Dr. Joe Show, Greg Voisin. Welcome, Greg. Welcome, welcome. Hey, all of you, thank you very much, and all of the listeners in Boston and surrounding areas, thank you for listening to me and wanting to learn more about uh, my show, me, and my book. Well, let's get right into it. Let's start with you, Greg. You have a remarkable background. I've read your book. The opening, is it? it's just so powerful. Can you want to tell folks a little bit, first of all, about the opening of Hacking the Gap? Yeah, the book is called Hacking the Gap, A Journey from Intuition to Innovation. And I, I think where the journey starts with me, and, and I'll be brief with this, is, you know, as you're growing up, all these life experiences, Dr. Joe, as you know, which goes along with you as a psychologist, Kind of get embedded. Even worse, Greg. Psychiatrists. Uh, psychiatrists. Psychi- of course, that only matters to psychiatrists, but that's okay. <laughs> but I think what happens is, you know, we start to set up these limiting beliefs. And the reason that I actually started this show is I used to be, uh, and then I'm speeding forward here, but uh, for a long time, I was a top producer in the financial services industry. And I was just burnt out. And my son came to me and he says, uh, you know, dad, you go to all those million dollar round table meetings and you get to hear all those great speakers. How about if you brought them on your show? Greg, how old, how were, about you? You how old were you when your son came up to you? How old was your son? Not how old you. How old was your son when he came up to you and give you that, that advice? advice? Yeah. How old was he? Um, he was about 14 at the time because he it. built the first website. That's incredible. 14 years old with wisdom. Go ahead. So what happened next? So I started this podcast show 15 years ago, Inside Personal Growth, as a means to um, help educate people and inform them and inspire them about what they could do about, and I'm not just going to say limiting release because we cover business, personal growth, wellness, mastery, and spirituality. So what I find is that the spirituality side of things is a big issue, but we, you know, and I both know that uh, some of the issues are, you, you know, you've got the subconscious and the conscious and the subconscious mind gets programmed and literally it's very hard to unwind. Um, and I believe that as a, as a human species walking the face of the earth, um, that I, I was speaking with a social biologist the other day on a podcast. Her book was Watchman's Rattle and the other one was On the Verge. And she said, you know, it's really great. You, we do all this. We have all these analytics. We can tell what's going on. But the reality is, um, and her name is Rebecca Costa, is she says, as a social biologist, looking at our species for millions of years, we literally wait till almost a disaster to make a change. Uh, we're really programmed that way. We're rewired that way. And I, what I wanted to let people know is that you can choose to make a change before that. Uh, and the, the hacking the gap part of it is um, finding the fastest way between point A and point B, uh, really, and doing that through learning versus you having to have all these difficult learning experiences. Now, just yesterday, I had a beautiful guest on the show, Sterling Hawking, and uh, his book is called Hunting Discomfort. 
And he's basically saying the only way through is the discomfort that you have to go through to basically, and you should be hunting it. You shouldn't be waiting for discomfort to come because discomfort's going to come. So my show is really around everybody who's discomfortable, uncomfortable, uncertain, uh, looking for solutions with inside themselves and has the ability, obviously, then to take action on that. In other words, you can take the action when you choose to take that action. Um, so that's a little bit about me, but more about, you know, the book and the process and, and how I got there. But, but what was it that was going on in your world that inspired you to do this for so many other people? I would say that I had a lot of, you know, as the Buddha says, there's pain and suffering and then there's getting out of pain and suffering, right? And uh, I think there was a tremendous amount of pain and suffering for me on not, not being enough. Mm. And I, th I think I see so many people out there who don't believe they're enough. Um, and whether it was your parents who said, hey, you needed to get A's in high school and college and you believe that or you wouldn't be or you needed to be on the dean's list or whatever the story was or you needed to marry this XYZ person because it was going to be great. Um, it's all about, you know, uh, self-doubt, uh, doubting ourself and doubting our ability. And from a personal growth standpoint, done 957 interviews with authors on really these topics and what i find is a broad range of approaches to uh i wouldn't say solving the problems either really analyzing the problems analyzing the problems and you defining your own solution you defined yours well mine was the pain and suffering of a family you know, I, 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 you go back to this. Uh, I was brought up with a little Jewish mother and a Catholic father. He never, uh, he never practiced Catholicism. Uh, so my mother's was a dominant in the family. And her message was the Groundhog's Day that, what did you do for me today? She didn't mean for her. She meant, what did you do today? There was never about being. It was always about doing. Right. And so I think what happens is we get caught in this kind of rat trap of not really thinking about who we are, what we want to become, but what we need to do to look good in the eyes of other people. And especially your parents who you're living up to, who've put a pretty high, put you on a pretty high pedestal in most cases. Right. I think that's, and I don't and I don't think, Joe, from generation to generation, this isn't anything against my mother's generation or the generation prior to her. But I think this is perpetuated. You know, if I did a histogram of my family, I could see all of that there. I did a histogram. So I saw what happened with inside uh, the family. And um, I'm not blaming anybody. I'm so blessed to have had a family like this, but I'm even more blessed for what I just said, having figured it out on my own and worked my way through it to get to the other side. Now that meant, you know, uh, Dr. Joe going through anxiety attacks, not being able to get on an elevator, not being able to go into a restaurant, being afraid, thought I was having a heart attack, being hooked up to stuff on my head so that they could look at the electrodes and see what I was doing. When I actually saw what I was doing myself to debilitate myself physically, that it wasn't, you know, something 
that um, somebody on the outside world did. I can't blame them for what's going on. I created it all. That's right. Well, if if it's always someone else's fault, you're never in control. Right. And if you're not in control, you're always going to be anxious. And, and off air, we, you were talking about a new book that you're working on, Greg. So tell me about that. I, I'm, I'm working. I'm really excited about it, actually. I've, I've been so blessed to meet so many authors along the way. And a lot of them have said, hey, Greg, will you help me write my next book? Hmm. And this one is uh, Life on the Precipice. And it's a story of a gentleman who's done climbed the highest seven summits. And I think that all of these peaks that we ha- that we ra- we get to as people come with challenges, right? So he's climbed Everest twice. He's climbed all the highest seven summits in the world. But in the process of writing this book, I got the pleasure and the honor of interviewing uh, in excess of 20 mountain climbers who've climbed most of these peaks, okay? And some of you might, some of the listeners might know NIMS. Uh, that's the, the, the guy from Tibet that did the story. Uh, you, you probably know the guy that did the face in Yosemite. Uh, we had, you know, so you look at these people and I said, it's interesting how they look at life, Dr. Joe. Um, they're not intentionally going out after death. They're intentionally going out because they're curious and they're explorers. But they say you only live life when you face death. So in other words, when you get to that precipice, when you get to that peak for me to make it up there, and you'll hear this again and again and again, they say, we're not saying we're advocating the death, but we're so drawn to the mountains that the mountains call us to keep getting to the top uh, and exploring. And I think that's about personal growth as well. The journey that you take from birth to death is your journey. And Every step along the way, you get an opportunity to make choices. Do I go this way? Do I go that way? Is there going to be an avalanche? Is there going to be a rock slide? <laughs> you know, am I going to fall? Whatever it might be. Um, but, you know, it's in the end, you'll hear this from them too, because their lives are so rattled with trying to find balance and harmony. They're away from their families for long periods of time. Uh, lots of divorces, lots of challenges. Um, not really being able to manage that well because this calling from the mountains is so strong that they just leap. They just go. It's almost like they blank out and go, well, I'm going to leave you again. We're going to take care of the family. I'm off to go climb the mountain, right? Another six-month expedition. Um, so I found it fascinating. I'm finding the whole thing fascinating because the insights that are being received as a result of this gift I was given by a gentleman by the name of Bo Parfait, um, it, it just correlates so much to personal growth and to my book, Hacking the Gap. Everybody on that mountain is trying to find the shortest distance between two points with the least amount of pain and suffering along the way to get to the peak. It's an incredible metaphor, but it's, it's interesting, given your interview with the sociobiologist, the sociobiologist is saying that, that many human beings are incredibly cautious. 
and they don't want to make a change until they absolutely have to adapt to a new environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet that can absolutely cripple us if we are waiting for the environment to influence the changes that we make. Well, the juxtaposition is you get a lot of people that sit on their butt and you get a lot of people that mountain climb. Yeah. So you, you have to say it, it physiologically, if the endorphins are being released chemically with inside of me as a result of the activity. So here you have Mark, he's going to go do a bike ride. You can't tell me that bike riding doesn't release tons of endorphins because yeah. it does, because what happens is you get out, you have nothing else to think about. You're on the road and you're literally one with yourself. It's a meditation beyond any meditation in the world. You can go do Chen. You can tell me everything about meditation. I've spent more time on a cushion as much as anybody and I will tell you, riding my bike is more meditative than sitting on the cushion, okay? And the reason is sitting on the cushion is not providing me with the same endorphin, not that it couldn't, because look, I just watched the Netflix uh, deal with Michael Pollan on all the psychosyllabums and, you know, microdosing LSD and taking ayahuasca and all these things to attempt to get to a certain level within side. Now, I, I believe that all these these plant-based drugs are wonderful. It's curing OCD. It's curing PTSD. It's doing all kinds of things that people out there are in pain with. And they can really shorten the cycle of that pain by actually taking or administering one of those drugs. I would highly advocate it. One has to be quite cautious, though. WATD right. does not endorse this. The, it's not the, endorsed. the views of the show are not. <laughs> but, but, I understand. But, but Mark, let me ask you. Uh, uh, you know, do you relate to what Greg is talking about with the, the uh, meditative aspect of cycling? Yeah. So, I mean, the reason I'm there is, is it, I, I'm more of a. I always say I'm a fundraiser, not a cyclist. I'm a fundraiser who happens to ride a bike, but. Over the years, I'm totally engaged with what Greg's talking about because there's something about riding. You you see things that you would never see in a car. You'll never see jogging, right? Jogging, you run three miles and you run a circle and you see the same things every time. Maybe you run five, seven miles, but here you're riding over the course of training hundreds and hundreds of miles in random, random places, and it's really it's splendid because you, you, you really realize what is out there and it is meditative. There's no question about it. If you're in that zone and simply pedaling and looking around, it's, it's quite relaxing. It is even, even Dr. Joe, the cans that have been thrown out on the side of the roads become interesting little uh, obstacles for you because you only have one and, and you can, Chime in, Mark. You only have one objective. And your objective is every time your foot moves around the pedal to make sure you stay upright, stay focused, and you'd stay diligent on the road and make sure you don't get hit or whatever it might be. And at the same time, you get the opportunity to enjoy that scenery off to the right or the left. Um, I happen to be blessed. I get to ride up and down the coast of California. So every time I ride to the right, I look out into the ocean and I can see whales. I can see seals. Um, If it's on a great day, I can see some really nice bikinis too, right? Uh, So the reality is, is that 
you know, you you do this, and it, but it isn't something that if you drove your car, like he just said, that you would take notice of. But because the bike doesn't go as fast and you're exerting energy, lots of energy to make this happen, whether you're climbing a hill or you're doing whatever, it becomes extremely meditative. Agreed. And then how do you use that exercise, that meditative ability, and translate it into your workday? How do you take that, what sounds like peace and calm and awareness and vigilance and, you know, just being tuned in? How do you then take that and use it in work? And, and is that part of hacking the gap as well? Yeah, well, there's there's prescriptive and there's takeaways in the chapter. Anyone who gets the book will can read that. There's a lot on meditation. There's a lot on solace. There's a lot on contemplation. When I say a lot, I mean there's much written about the th- the things you can do. So if we are going to be doing beings, let's do doing beings, which is helping take us to the highest level of consciousness as a soul we could to transmute whatever level of pain. It also allows you to get tremendous focus. I mean, you know, Stephen Kotler's been on here, The Art of Impossible, all these books that he's written and done studies on this. And he'll say, look, you know, Mark does it, I'll bet, for two reasons. One, he's out there raising money, and that's a cause beyond himself. So he has a purpose. But he's also curious. When you start with curiosity, it leads through a series of things to purpose, and I believe that it does. And most people have high levels of curiosity. So I, I'm doing a, an interview um, uh, with uh, Seth Goldberg. He's in actually he's in um, Nantucket, and the book is um, called Radical Curiosity. Right, and you know what we've lost. We've lost this radical curiosity Hmm. to help solve problems. And um, I think he's absolutely right. And Dr. Joe, what I would say is when you get out on a bike and you use this now to come in, you're more engaged to want to focus on doing something good and solving somebody's problem. Well, the radical curiosity, it it would be nice if we could regain that well so look this book while it is written for individuals who are entrepreneurs everybody's a broad entrepreneur in my mind mm-hmm. okay? i agree or I can agree. be okay yes. and i tested this because i went to the universities and i did a lot of studies and i and i interviewed software engineers and all kinds of other people and you know somebody who was radically curious like we said last time was Stephen Jobs. Probably couldn't have been anybody more radically curious than Stephen Jobs. But you'll find that a lot of the architects of our software, there's many gentlemen and women who are radically curious. They want to solve a problem. And so I said to myself, well, I want to ask you guys something. And I started out with this survey, Dr. Joe, around intuition. Well, do you believe that you use intuition to create the software? Do you believe you use intuition? Where did this intuition come from? And I'd get some people that would just light up and go, yeah, I I got intuition. I get other people, no, it's too scientific. There's no intuition. I don't believe in intuition. Hmm. I was like, 
well, really, so did you ever have a feeling? Did you ever get a sense? Did you ever go down? Well, yeah, I did, but I don't believe that's intuition because I believe what happened is I'd programmed my brain enough through college and enough meetings that I connected the dots. And I said, yeah, I believe you did connect the dots. But sometimes you connect the dots and it's, you're missing a dot. Where did the dot come from? Well, I had this epiphany. Oh, so you did have some little epiphany about how you might redesign something to make it. So here's for the listeners. uh, And there's a little graph and chart in the book. Dr. Joe knows this. You know, I believe it starts with intuition. Uh, It's listening deeply. We just talked about that. You know, Mark's going on a bike ride. Thomas is doing long walks. He's listening deeply, right? And there is a voice that speaks to you. People would say, oh, voice and you're crazy. And, you know, you get, you, you hear these voices. Wait, was, was that a pun? Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and then the second thing is, I think from that, you get an insight. And the insight is really, it's the, I call it the aha moment. There's mm-hmm. a lot written about insights. There's a lot written about intuition. But when that insight now is like, whoa, I have an idea. I have an idea for that iPhone, Steve Jobs, right? How many of you know he used to use the tone on the phone? Probably Thomas does. And he used to go in pay phones and he used to hit those numbers. And he started with the tones that the phone would make. You know, you'd go, dot, not, 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 you know, when you're hitting it. So, and he used to scam the phone company because he knew how to do it. He was that smart. That's how he, he was making all kinds of calls without ever paying for them. So you had this idea, and here's the point. You get inspired then because knowing it's right. Now, here's here's what it is. Is it a knowing for you? It doesn't have to be a knowing for somebody else, all right? So, you know, you'll, you'll have people argue points with you about your idea, and they tell you, as I just said, you're crazy. You're a lunatic. That idea is never going to work. And then you read in the newspaper Six months later, some guy had the same idea and went for it. And you're like, shoot, I had that great idea. And I'm saying, everybody's got great ideas. You just didn't take action on them. What we were just talking about at the beginning of the show, we waited around forever before we ever implemented anything. Then after inspiration, you incubate. We all incubate for a period of time. We got to think about it, cogitate on it, think it over. After that, Here's one of the hardest steps, and it's the ignition step, all right? And that's where you manage the energy associated with launching any good idea, because a lot of entrepreneurs will burn out before the idea ever takes hold because they don't know how to manage their own personal energies. So whether you take runs or you ride your bike or you meditate or whatever it might be, And I found this to be the case because for me, I got in many positions where I ended up getting anxiety attacks because I was so much there that I couldn't deal with it. It was like, I didn't know how to manage the energy. I was like overboard, right? Um, And then you go into the innovation and people say, well, that's innovation stage. Yeah, you have to innovate the idea. You got to take it. You got to make prototypes. You got to make models. You got to, you know, you got to work it up, right? And last one is implementation. So the step from innovation to implementation is 
for most people, that's the marketing part. That's the part, well, I got my prototype. It works. I sent it to China. It all came back. It's all working. Let's now put it to market. We're going to put it on the internet. We're going to shove it up at Amazon. We're going to, we're going to get it to work. We're going to get people to buy it. So that little cycle, I went out and then I went to people in the innovation departments, actually a very famous one in Massachusetts, actually, a gal, can't think of her name right now. And I asked her, I said, hey, you know, this was my theory. I just kind of tested it. She said, you know, you have every step that is actually almost 100% correct. I might put it in a different order, but the reality is anybody who's studied innovation, every one of those steps is part of the process. I thought, okay, well, I thought that was my idea. It really wasn't. It actually had already been out there, but the reality is, is that I think everybody needs to know that with inside of you resides a person who has a great idea that if you act on it, could do something that could change the world. So act on it. So what do you say to the folks that say, yeah, but if I say it out loud, someone might steal it from me? Well, I th- I think Dr. Joe would have probably attest to this, is, is they have enough self-doubt in themselves that they aren't willing to say it out loud, and they have fear. They have so much fear themselves. So we could talk about fear all day long, but I remember a long time ago going to talks and I think it was Zig Ziglar used to say, it's false expectations appearing real, right? And I always could remember that acronym, right? And again, I come from more of a Eastern philosophy. I think the biggest challenge in managing that energy, Mark and Joe and Tom, is you get attached to something and you think it's going to happen a certain way. But if you have attachment to the goal, occur- goal occurring a certain way, it doesn't always happen that way. And that burns you out. And that was me. I was like, oh, it's going to go just this way. You're step one, step two, step three, step four. That's bullshit. It never, ever happens that way. The other part is, you know, Marshall Goldsmith was on here, the, the biggest coach in the United States, coaching a, people that achieve a ton. And he said, you know, you move on a continuum from regret to fulfillment. And here's the reality is that when you don't know that all of this is impermanent and you're a high achiever, you don't even know as a high achiever what impermanence is. You don't even know what not being attached to something is if you're a high achiever. And why are you a high achiever? Because you're trying to uh, uh, solve something for yourself or prove something to yourself or to someone else and most likely somebody else. Mm. Does that get back to the, the philosophy of your mom to do? Oh yeah. My mom, she ingrained into me. Um, what did you do today? Are you saving your money? You know, it doesn't matter what it was, but hers was all around I'm not going to just say doing. It was all about you achieving. Mm -hmm. Because the only way you could be recognized was to achieve something. Yeah. Okay. And I think, you know, that, that also haunts a lot of people, doesn't it, Greg? That some people, they feel they're imposters. They feel that their achievements are just shams to other people. And yet 
we're all at an IM. We're all doing the best we can at every moment in time, the potential to change. Um, and to back to that intuition, one of the things that, that I like to say is intuition is a precursor to technique. You know, we have these intuitive things to do. We, we, we just sort of instinctively do something. It's our intuition with this. But once you know why you're doing it, you can do it at any time. You can make it a technique. And to go back to, to some of your other things about the innovation and, and being able to see this, this intuition, this picture, there was this guy, Kukuli. I don't know if you ever know about this guy. It's in organic chemistry. People still awake, I'm sorry. But um, in organic chemistry, there was this problem with this, this molecule, these carbons, six carbons that didn't make sense at all. And Kukuli was working on this, working on it. He had a dream. He literally, I'm, I'm not talking about he had a dream like a vision. He was asleep. And mm -hmm. in his sleep, he had this dream mm -hmm. about six snakes that were in a circle biting each other's tails. That is the structure of the carbon ring. The mm -hmm. benzene ring, that's what changed our understanding of organic chemistry. And it was a dream. He he had this intuition. He put it together. And so, what you say there about the snake biting its tail is literally in the Do Chin philosophy. Huh. That's awareness of your awareness. Wow. So, you know, when you're awareness of your awareness, right, then there's no thing. Yeah. So then the mind is empty, you know, so, so I think that because that symbolism of that, you know, that snake that you just said, I have a feeling there might have been more to that than just solving the problem, right? Mm. Because when you can get that to that estate, you can then find this, uh, I'm not going to say nirvana, but we just, I talked a few minutes ago about, and you said <laughs> this isn't endorsed by this show, but if, if people are going to take psychosilumpin or you know any of these lsd or whatever microdose you know they're actually seeking some kind of state like that to get through now in this gentleman's case as a scientist he was trying to break through the problem yes right now that didn't mean that he, he didn't microdose something to get there maybe he did before he went to sleep but my point was is that he came up with a solution you don't have to microdose anything to do that you know what you have to do you have to do a hell of a lot more bike riding like what Mark's doing and mm -hmm. I'm doing, and you will get there. Yeah, you will. Because when you can be connected to the world in that way, when we realize that, that the air that we breathe doesn't separate us but connects us, right. that is a powerful, powerful thing. And I think it's very comforting. I think, you know, we're one group. We're humanity. It's not this group and that group and this group and that group separated all the time. We don't have to be, but it's in that separation that we get the anxiety because if I'm separate from you, then you may want to compete with me. But what's nice is we don't have that competition here. We're not separate. There must've been some moment when your, your 14 year old son comes up to you and says, dad, you know, maybe it's time to do something else. Well, you know, he, my son was very observant and he saw that I was in pain, like I said, and the pain was attributed to, and now I realize at a time I didn't, 
my belief system about what I was doing. Mm. I think anything is transmutable when you shift the lens of focus. And But I didn't know how to shift that lens of focus uh, and my perspective. So to me, it was bringing lots of pain. And so he and I, actually, he grew a little older, but during that time, I started the show, and then he became 18, and then I started a consulting company for business owners uh, and through a company called Illuminate Consulting, Inc., and our job was really transforming the culture of the organizations with inside it. And we would go around and do meditation retreats when they weren't very uh, cool. And it was amazing. I remember Joe, one year he and I went down to this big conference we're invited to for logistics. So this is FedEx, it's, it's, uh, it's UPS, it's all these guys, right? Management. And we said, uh, our program is called Never Mind the Noise, Thriving in a World of Ever-Increasing Complexity. Come to this workshop. Well, when the management companies put that up, there were thousands, it sold out. They were waiting out the door. Wow. My, my son and I were like, how in the world is this happening? These guys that are out there doing logistics, driving trucks and whatever, want to come in and figure out how to get some peace. So we did this Never Mind the Noise workshop for quite some time all around the country. And for the insurance industry that I had been in. And um, the reality was it wasn't just meditation. We, we taught more than that about releasing, how to release themselves from the confines of that con construct in the mind. Um, but they all walked away. And honestly, we, we would do an hour-long workshop. We'd put 15 to 20 minutes of meditation in it. And they'd all be leaving floating, going because they'd never actually done breathing, deep breathing, or meditating, ever. And they're like, cool, because we would have this for three days at this workshop, Joe, and we'd see the same people come back again. So they were coming back into the workshop more than once. So I thought that was very fulfilling. You know, it it, it is wonderful to hear, Greg, because, you know, one of the things that we've talked about with the IM is, you know, when you remind someone else of their value, you increase your own value. And in part, this is also what Mark is talking about with, with his bicycle riding. He'll use the word gratitude and how, how it's amazing. Well, maybe you can talk about it, Mark. When, when you're riding, you know, and people are handing, giving you water or just on the side of the road. The event itself, yeah. It's, it's 48 hours of pure gratitude, volunteers, um, thanking, thank you. No, thank you. And then there's people on the side showing signs. I'm, you know, 12 years old because of you. And, you know, those things, it's, uh, it's spiritual. It's, uh, it's very, very fulfilling. And it's plus it's, there's a big community mark that, yeah. that, um, you, you want to talk about communities of support and what you do with young people who've had addiction and bringing them in this community, of writers and support and administrators for the organizations, Dana Farber in this case, it it's just, you, you can't, I don't know of anywhere else I've gone where I've found that deep connectedness in the community. That's why you keep coming back year and year and people say, right. oh, you've done like 13 events. You're coming right. back again. Or what are you, a masochist? Right. And I was like, you know, yeah, I am. Yeah. <laughs> But there's something, there really is something about service, about doing something for somebody else. Yeah. You know, 
one of, one of the things we talk about with the IM is we all want the same thing, which is just to feel valued by somebody else. But for millennia, human beings have increased their value by decreasing somebody else's. And then are astonished that the other person does the same. That's why we have the wars, the, the conflict, the separations. But we don't need to do that anymore. We actually never needed to do that. You can always remind someone of their value. You become more valuable. You increase your group, which means you're then safer. And when you feel safer, you can shift your brain from that. Well, you, you talk about the cortisol response in, in your book about the stress and how cortisol will interfere with things. But you can then actually do more. When you give, one of the things we say in, in the addiction world that I talk with my, my folks about is contribute to society to help with your sobriety. When you contribute, it increases oxytocin in your brain, not oxycontin, oxytocin, and you just feel trusted. Mm -hmm. That's what we really want. So yeah. what do you think, Greg? I think it's a, you know, you're speaking about your group and addiction. I just did an interview with Pamela Brinkler. She wrote a book called Conscious Bravery, How to Care for People with Addiction. No, it's just I it was really, really fascinating because you know, the caregivers of people with addiction, in her case, two sons that got on methamphetamines and created a very hellish life for her. Plus, she had just lost a husband to brain cancer as these kids were growing up. So she had kind of compounded. But what you said, what she did to transmute the pain was to learn how to be okay with who she was as a mother, that it, she didn't blame herself. She used meditation. And again, I don't want to harp on meditation, but I do want to say that I'm an advocate for whatever it is that you do that can calm your mind and get the monkey out of the brain because mm -hmm. it's in yeah. there all the time repeating yeah. and talking. So whether you do walks like Thomas did or you get on a bike or you go surf or it, it, it doesn't matter. I think anything in nature is a great prescriptive tool. And if you read my book, you're going to see I give lots of nature prescriptive elements associated with it. Because we have, and I'm not saying everybody, but as a society, I think we've lost touch with nature. You know, Mother Earth is calling out right now. Global warming is calling out. You guys are sitting in Boston at 97 degrees tonight. Uh, we're seeing fires all around Spain and other places in the world. And you can't tell me that there isn't a revolt as a result of this from the earth saying enough is enough, right? And so I hope as a society, we all can come together and find solutions for these problems. Um, and in the process, I hope we all learn how peaceful we can be as a society along the way because we do not have to have this insane conflict in ukraine and russia and what's going on i'm um, not that it's the only one like i can go back in history and we can name hundreds of these stupid wars that have occurred but, but i couldn't agree more and and you know that's what i also hope when people read the book because intuition to innovation and beyond it's more than just your business it really is how we approach our world right now it yeah. is time you know Greg, the, the I am approach 
we talk about the four domains. We're doing the best we can in response to your home domain, your social domain, the biological domain of your brain and body, and the I see, how I see myself, how I think other people see me. Because these domains interact, a small change in any domain can have a big effect. You don't need to change everything. So, Greg, given what we're talking about tonight, what small change can you recommend to our listeners? I think um, one of them is intention, setting your intention um, to do something for yourself and someone else. You know, my show, you know, you made a contribution. I decided that every dollar that came in from the authors is going to go to the homeless. And so I walk the street with gift cards and I give it out to the homeless. And when Mm. it gets cold enough, I give them socks and hats and I do whatever. Now, I couldn't tell you how many of those people are drug addicted or how many of them are just bad on luck. But I have interviews that I've done with them. And I will tell you, 80% of them are not drug addicted. They're literally just there because of some bad luck. Some yeah. some some circumstances and events that they don't didn't know how to deal with, and they didn't have what you and I are talking about right now, the I am. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And if they did, they probably wouldn't be there. So give them an opportunity to give them a chance. Yeah. And it's it's so it's not about morality, it's about mortality. It is just the way the brain works. This isn't a moral issue. But the second truth of the I am. Everyone is interested in what you think or feel about them through that IC domain. And that has effect on their biological domain because you know it feels different when you feel respected or disrespected. You're part of someone's home or social domain. So the second truth, you control no one, you influence everyone. You Mm -hmm. get to choose the kind of influence you want to be. Greg Voison, what kind of influence do you want to be? I would say that I would the influence that I want to have is compassion spread to everybody that I live, work with. I understand I'm not perfect. There are times, like you got to look at yourself, you get angry, you get upset at things. But underneath all that, compassion, and I was not just the Dalai Lama and not just Stephen Kotler, but in the end, if we're going to solve all these other problems... One of the biggest thing that needs to happen is there needs to be everybody needs to have a big dose of compassion for the other souls walking the planet. Um, And with that, that's that's really what I say. I mean, my my foundation is Compassionate Communications Foundation. Hack in the Gap, Greg Voice, and you can get it on Amazon. Amazon and, and his website. Please, folks, get it. It is terrific. Greg. Thank you so much for being on the Dr. Joe Show tonight. Thanks folks. for having me. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Tom. Larry, we'll see you later. See Thanks, you next week, Joe. folks. Stretch the kindness, brush with madness. Is it sadness or just a show then?